Church membership. <clears throat> this will be a little bit shorter. If I can keep my voice. <clears throat> One of the reasons I want to talk about this today is because we have a number of our older youth group kids who are now old enough to join, and we are currently in the process of talking to them about that. And, um, and I have some adults that, you know, I need to talk to about this as well, but just haven't made my way to get all that set up yet. So, and secondly, the whole discussion of membership deals with, of course, um, our obligations to the church and to each other, which seems to be an appropriate thing to cover at the beginning of the year when we typically talk about such matters. So my plan this morning is to start off explaining our own practice, which is probably a little different than what is found in many churches, and then I'll attempt to address some common objections and questions. The practice of church membership is not as common as it once was, though there are probably a number of reasons for this. There seems to be three that especially stand out. One, it, there's a kind of this reaction to denominationalism where churches are pressured to boost membership numbers. Secondly, there is a continual decline in what we call biblical ecclesiology in evangelical churches, um, having a low view of church authority and church structure. And three, there is certainly a rising influence of Platonism, which views the church solely as a spiritual body. Uh, de-emphasizing its legitimacy and value as an actual institution in the world. So our practice here is derived from an understanding of what the New Testament teaches regarding the relationship between two groups of people in the church, elders and, to use the King James Version, saints. You all like to be called saints, right? <laughs> between church leaders and parishioners, congregants. And sadly, this understanding has been lost in recent decades. So here's a short sampling of passages that address the nature of this relationship, and as we read through them, I want you to notice that both the elders and the members have certain obligations to each other. It's reciprocal. There's, it's a two-way kind of thing. Paul writes, Now I, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in their highest regard and love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. It's similar in Hebrews, obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. In 1 Peter, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, observing as, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be, obviously he's talking to elders here, not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over those, who, over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. First Timothy, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. Okay, back to Acts again, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. So church leaders, to summarize this, are to work hard in their management of the congregation. They are called upon to not only teach, but also to admonish, which implies accountability. They are to direct the affairs of the church and protect uh, the people from false doctrine. Uh, they are given the charge to shepherd and oversee the flock. Their diligence in all of this, or lack of, will be something for which they will answer when they stand before God. Therefore, very clear, they need to know who is under their care, for whom they are responsible. Uh, thus, 
you know, well, the practice of membership provides this. How do you know unless you have something like that? Likewise, members are to respect the elders, submit to them, and not be a burden. They're instructed to hold them in the highest regard and love and even obey them. For a Christian to fulfill such mandates, he needs to be under the authority of a specific eldership. And given the magnitude of choices today in any given community, he must decide which eldership. Basically, the practice, again, of membership establishes this. Things are made clear. This is my church. These are my elders. I'm going on record with that. Membership is also the means by which a parishioner grants permission to the church leaders to exercise oversight over his or her life. This accountability is something that cannot be assumed. It needs to be clearly agreed upon. Um, today, with our consumer mentality where people jump from one church to the next, the elders need to know who it is that they are actually pastoring and eldering. Who is part of our church body? Who is not? For whom exactly are we responsible? Responsible before God and will give an account of. The early church, of course, wasn't faced with these, those problems. Christians did not have 40 churches of 40 different denominations at Ephesus or Corinth or Thessalonica for which to choose from. Membership has now become necessary to properly identify which eldership a believer is relating to. <clears throat> In addition to this, all members have obligations to the other members. To use the words of Paul in Romans 12, we belong to each other. Those are very weighty words. We belong to each other. In Ephesians 4, a popular passage that we have looked at many times in the past, we read about the every member ministry principle that builds the body up in love through the proper working of each individual part. The whole body matures and grows together, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And this, as we see in the verses above that, all takes place under the oversight of the church leaders. This is God's design. Again, responsibilities of members to members, of members to elders, and of elders to members. And we could look at other passages as well, like Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Peter 4, and so on. So, <clears throat> with this in mind, let's consider some common objections. These are ones that I've encountered through the years. I don't know why I have to formalize anything. I belong to Christ, and therefore I belong to the church. We certainly don't find anything in the New Testament indicates Christians joined a church. Well, that's kind of correct. This, this is basically, however, an argument from silence. Just because it isn't mentioned doesn't mean it didn't happen or that it was something that they opposed. But more than that, again, their situation was different than ours. You know, <clears throat> to say it again, they had one church in Philippi, one church in Corinth, one church in Ephesus, and so on. These agreements, saints to elders and elders to the saints and saints to each other that we read about in the New Testament, were there. And were all part of one's conversion and discipleship. They were formalized in baptism. As Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, when one is baptized into Christ, he is also baptized into Christ's body, the church. And they understood that as being their local church and church universal. Another objection goes like this. Well, membership is just unbiblical. Okay, it depends on what you mean by unbiblical. Do you mean that it is not found in the Bible, it's not authorized by the Bible, or that it is against what the Bible teaches? Those are two entirely different things. And the word unbiblical can 
mean either one of those. You aren't going to find anything in the Bible that suggests that it is against, you aren't going to find anything that suggests that it is against what the Bible teaches. Regarding not being authorized by the Bible, well, just think about this for a moment. Churches do all sorts of things all sorts of things today, either by convenience or necessity that aren't specifically mentioned in God's word, like hiring a youth minister, using the English translation of the scriptures, meeting in a church building, training pastors in seminaries, using grape juice for communion instead of wine, baptized in a tank instead of a river, use guitars and drums and keyboards in church music, register the church as a nonprofit organization with the state, and so on. There's nothing in the Bible that mentions church leaders officiating weddings. And so technically, all of these and more are unbiblical, or more accurately, extra-biblical. But they are not against anything the Bible teaches. The Bible doesn't forbid them, and the same with church membership. If someone says they don't believe in church membership, then we need to find out what it is in particular that they are objecting to. And that will be telling. Is it church involvement, church attendance, commitment? Is it accountability? Is it submission to the oversight of elders? Is it adherence to orthodox beliefs? Is it permission to be confronted about sin? Is it supporting the church financially? Is it supporting the church with acts of service? Is it supporting the church by not creating divisions? And then there's this objection, which is more like a backdoor objection to membership. <clears throat> I don't understand why I can't serve unless I'm a member. You need helpers in the nursery. You need Sunday school teachers. You need musicians. Why the restrictions? Well, several reasons for this. They should be obvious. In such acts of service, you are re representing the church, and you can't do that if you aren't in a proper relationship with that church. Also, there has to be some accountability. For instance, we just can't have anyone teaching anything they want or doing anything they want. We need formal agreements that one is serving under the oversight of church leaders. And that can't be assumed. Again, it needs to be clearly stated. That's membership. And thirdly, we need to know that we are all on the same page, agree to the same crucial doctrines of the faith, share the same philosophy of ministry, the same philosophy of church, and so on that we are like-minded on common goals and objectives and approaches. And again, membership establishes this. <clears throat> a question, not really an objection, but a valid question is this, is what about kids, children and teens under 18 who are part of families that are members, we consider them members with a small M, you might say. Any relationship we have with them is with and through their parents, so they can help in the nursery, help in Sunday school, play in the music band, etc. They are, they are in right relationship with this church because their parents are in right relationship with this church. So as you can see, we welcome visitors, non-members, to attend all of our services and events. If a person has been attending for six months to a year or so, then the question just needs to be asked about their intentions. It's sort of like courtship. We're hoping that this is more than some sort of shallow, loose relationship, you know, something more than recreational dating, so to speak but rather has an objective, has a goal. We're hoping that they've been learning about our congregation, interacting with the members, interacting with the church leaders, learning about our philosophies and policies, so as to consider a formal relationship uh, and make that commitment. If they aren't willing to do that, then they need to find a church where they can make that commitment. 
One thing we don't want to do here is accommodate this I don't need to be accountable to any church attitude. Every Christian needs to be rightly related to a church body. All right, there's one more, and it is one that I've never heard anyone actually say, but I'm pretty sure that it's there lingering in the back of people's minds. <clears throat> and it goes like this. I'm not that excited about putting myself under anyone's authority. That requires a lot of trust. And indeed, indeed, it does. And if you were to look at our own eldership here, Dave, Tim, and me, well, to speak candidly, you know, it's not a five-star rating, all right? <laughs> um, there's, a lot, there's a lot of flaws. There's a lot to be improved upon. In some ways, we are good elders. In some ways, we are poor elders. And in some ways, we are okay elders. Depending on your expectations, an eldership with a five-star rating might be hard to find. And this is why we want folks to take six months to a year before they decide. Watch us, check us out, observe our strengths, take note of our weaknesses. This applies to both the eldership and the church body. If we fail to meet your expectations, then look for a church that you can be rightly related to. It's okay. But the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians 5, Hebrews 3, Hebrews 13 doesn't afford you the option of not being rightly related to a church or to an eldership. So there's so much more here about this whole subject I'd like, subject I'd like to address, like how the practice of membership can protect the church from lawsuits and, the, um, and protect it from the aggressive agenda of the LGBT activists and so on. That's a whole other subject. I'll say that maybe for another time. So just to wrap this up, I could probably illustrate our understanding of membership this way. The elders say to the members, this is what the scriptures require of us. And to the best of our ability, we will try to fulfill those responsibilities to you. The members say to the elders, this is what the scriptures require of us. And to the best of our ability, we will try to fulfill those responsibilities to you. And as fellow members, each of us say to one another, this is what the scriptures require of me. And to the best of my ability, I will try to fulfill those responsibilities to you and to everyone here. And this we need because we need to function as a God-ordained institution.